From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. When a child has cancer, the parents and whole family focus their time and energy on getting that child through whatever treatment is called for, be it surgery, chemotherapy, radiation therapy, or a combination of those. This usually means many appointments at the hospital, cancer center, and doctor's offices, medications to manage, schedules to adjust, and thinking no further ahead than the next medical test or appointment. But if the treatment is successful, the child and parents enter a new phase called cancer survivorship, which lasts a lifetime. Here to talk about it are Dr. Jody Seema, a pediatric oncologist who directs the Cancer Survivorship Program at Upstate, and Jim Howe, the parent of a child who had cancer, who was treated successfully and is now in survivorship. And Jim is also a staff member of HealthLink on Air. They're going to talk about what survivorship means for both the doctor and the parent of a child with cancer, and they know each other pretty well, so they're going to go by first names. Yeah. Uh, Jody, why don't we start by you explaining what you mean by cancer survivorship and how you approach it as a physician. And I'm going to tell our audience, here we're talking about childhood cancer. So we're talking about uh, children who have cancer and have been treated with it, uh, treated for it. And we're also going to talk about adults who were treated as children, which uh, is separate from cancers that people get as an adult. So, so it's an interesting question, and it shouldn't be that complicated, but there are about a million different definitions out there of what a cancer survivor is. I think one of the most important ones and kind of what I use is a cancer, you're a cancer survivor from the moment you're diagnosed. Whether you survive a month, a year, or 40 years, you are a cancer survivor. How we approach that from the perspective of care, you know, what does, what does our center do? What are our goals? How do we want to help survivors? Sometimes when people are treated for cancer, they have things that are given to them, chemotherapies, radiation, surgeries that are done to their bodies that have long lasting effects. Our goal is to acknowledge we have all these things that happened to recognize that bad things can sometimes happen down the line, 10, 20, 30 years from those things. How do we find the bad things, treat them quickly, and let people have the best life possible? So the center's name is the Survivor Wellness Center, and that's really our goal is to figure out how people can be the healthiest version of themselves they can be, no matter what happened to them to treat their cancer, but still respect that and sort of take that responsibility for their health and move forward in a positive way. Jim, why don't you give some background on, you're a parent of a child who had cancer. What type of cancer? Sure. Um, my daughter, Kate, who has given permission for me to speak about her, but uh, was not able to be here today, she had cancer as a child. She had a type of cancer called a neuroblastoma um, that originated in her nervous system, her spine specifically, uh, and had to be treated um, in, in an emergency surgery and she eventually had to get chemotherapy and has fully recovered. She's now in her late 20s. Um, but I wanted to go back a little bit to what uh, you, Amber, were saying at the beginning that we tend to think of cancer as when the, when the patient is sick. We tend to think of dealing with getting, those appoint, getting to those appointments on time. We tend to think of chemotherapy or radiation or um, surgery and how the whole household becomes focused on getting through the treatment somehow 
dealing with things like uh, insurance claims, trips to the doctor, dealing um, with uh, how, to, how to keep a household running while you're dealing with the cancer. Um, and that's, that's the focus of many stories on TV shows, movies, etc. So I want to say that after that, this is what we're thinking about now. This is survivorship is what comes after that. As you start to slow down, as you start to try and readjust to a more normal life. Um, I'm obviously speaking as the parent of a child who was too young to be conscious of that at the time. She was an infant, a baby, she, right? She was an infant, and she was successfully treated as a toddler. So her earliest memories do not include her treatment of cancer. She only remembers afterward. Um, so uh, maybe, Jody, you can pick up from there about... Um, How, what that looks like. Mm -hmm. It, depending on when a kid, you know, like Kate was little, right? So how she approaches survivorship is very different than some other kids would. So depending on how old you are really depends on how you have processed the cancer experience and how you're going to process survivorship. So it's very interesting to watch because I can have three patients, all these kids, and some of them are now adolescents and some of them are now young adults. So you can have three people. Um, all at different stages of their lives with similar cancer treatments, maybe similar times that they were treated in their, in their lifespan for cancer, but very different survivorship conversations um, and very different survivorship responsibilities. My survivors who come in and they're 10, we just start to talk about ownership of medical information a little bit. When they're 15, that's a very different conversation, and we really start talking about how survivorship means how they care for themselves for the rest of their lives. My 20-year-olds sometimes force their parents to the waiting room, <laughs> and that's a fun transition to watch. And But it's some of my 30-year-olds, maybe that's when the parents stop coming with them. But there are some that are still in the waiting room, and, and so you get these survivors with all different experiences of survivorship all different uh, complications or sort of things that are their, their own pieces of survivorship, their own medical pieces, their own psychosocial pieces that, that they own, and they all tackle it a little differently depending on where they are in the spectrum. And that changes over time. And Jim, you saw that over time. You know, what was that like as a parent watching baby to now Kate, who texted me good luck this morning with this talk, you know, a wonderful young woman. Yeah, well, the, um, as I mentioned, uh, for, for a parent, I, I think also for the child, depending on how well they're doing after their treatment is over, the idea of the cancer begins to recede into the background. They, they get back into a normal way of life around the house. The kid goes on with school, maybe with sports, with activities. It's just, it's something that's bubbling in the back of your mind as a as a child and as a parent, you're thinking, well, I was told this medication might affect their hearing later in life. This might be a problem when the child enters puberty. Um, maybe there'll be problems with something else that could come later in life. It's in the back of your mind and you're always waiting to see how did this latest test come out? Did it show that everything is okay? And in survivorship, that test tends to be annual. It tends to be an annual visit that's a happy visit. Um, it's a, uh, it doesn't involve uh, usually anything more than a blood test and a physical. So it's, it's a lot easier to handle than chemotherapy, radiation, or surgery. 
Um, as a matter of fact, the visits themselves can be can become quite an event. I know when my daughter was little, um, my wife used to schedule a day off near the near Christmas vacation where they would uh, make it a point to take off from school and work, come into the hospital for the visit, go out to lunch together, go shopping together, and it became a happy way for them to deal with survivorship, to think about survivorship. And of course, the, the nurses and doctors who all had seen her when she was sick were also happy to see her as someone who had recovered. Um, not every child uh, has the experience she did. Some children will need, during their survivorship, uh, further treatment. Maybe you could talk about that a little yeah. bit. Let, let me remind listeners first that this is Upstate uh, Medical University's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and today's discussion on the subject of childhood cancer survivorship is with pediatric oncologist Jody Seema and Jim Howe, the father of one of her patients and also my colleague at HealthLink on Air. So the question is really an interesting one. And what you can see, you know, your personal experience this lovely young girl who's really doing great. Um, and I would put her in a, yeah. So you can, you can risk group cancer survivors just like you can cancers. And it's very different. It doesn't mean that this is your risk of your cancer coming back. I think of it as the risk of problems coming up down the road. You know, Kate's a low, low to middle. And the thing that bumps her up to middle is anytime we treat infants, um, I watch them closely, <laughs> no matter what. But she's been doing beautifully, but you're very right, and that isn't everyone's experience. And there are some of my high-risk survivors who got complex multimodal therapy, which means intense chemotherapy, intense radiation. Some of our Hodgkin survivors um, are sort of, I think, the, the key group for this. And some of those people start mammograms at the age of 25 looking, screening for breast cancer. When you, when you think about breast cancer screening in the population, depending on whose guidelines you read, just for the general population, it's maybe 40 years old. What we're doing there is we're screening and saying, at 40 years old, there's about a 2% risk of someone having breast cancer in the next 10 years. So, hey, let's start screening. Some of my survivors hit that number at much younger ages, and there's a lot of different things that go into that. The same is true for things like colorectal cancer, for lung cancer, um, for cardiac, you know, heart disease, lung problems. So we do have a lot of stuff that we need to focus on and pay attention to that if we catch problems early, if we pay attention to how we're exercising and taking care of our bodies, that we try to mitigate and make all those things better. But I think the underlying thing that I hear from you is very important to me is that celebration. And, and I try every patient who comes in to say, you are a this many year survivor and how awesome is that? Because no matter what obstacles we have in our way, we're facing them, you're here, and, and there really is a happiness to that. Even when my survivors are facing things like a second cancer or kind of you know big bad things in their life, that is a good thing. And so, so I'm, I'm actually glad to hear that part that brings me a lot of joy in my work, which is this celebration of, yes, you're a survivor. You know, there's high fives around the room. And it's nice to know that that comes across. You know, that's really, I think, a good thing. And I think you've touched on something else that maybe we need to uh, explain a little more, which is that, for example, my daughter and, and other patients of yours who grow up will be coming to see you technically a pediatrician, as an adult. So you might get somebody who's 25, 35, 50 years old mm -hmm. coming to talk to someone who's technically a pediatrician yeah. 
because they had cancer as a child. So maybe you could talk about how that transition occurs and how you as a pediatrician happen to be dealing with it. It's, a, it's really interesting. I'll tell you, um, this came up. I was out of work unexpectedly for a period of time, and I had all these survivors on my schedule, and you are talking about 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds. And my partners were like, what? <laughs> we we got to see what? You know, because that's not in our everyday realm of what we're doing. And I'll tell you, I've been doing it so long now, it is second nature to me to look at an afternoon where I have three 30-year-olds on my schedule and to say, hey, that's normal. There really is a very different perspective, and I've had to do a lot of different training to really um, understand and recognize some problems and processes that don't happen the same in kids as they do adults. That being said, I'm also really good at recognizing the things I'm not an expert at. And part of what I try to do for my survivors as they get older and they sort of push the parents to the side is make them identify who's your primary care? Do you have one? And I really try to support that relationship because that primary care knows much more about managing their high blood pressure than I do. Now, I know I gave them chemo when they were young that can damage their heart. So I know I want that heart paid, you know, I want to pay very close attention to that hypertension. I want it well managed. Um, I know that sometimes my, my kids, when they're young, in their 20s, if they have high cholesterol, sometimes the PCPs might say, oh, you're young, we're not going to start treating you. That That's where that balance of my expertise saying, no, treat them. They need to be treated in their 20s. They have multiple risk factors. This high cholesterol is a result of their chemo. It's not going away from, you know, from sort of normal things. So there's this play back and forth between the areas where I have expertise in recognizing these problems in adults, but I also recognize, hey, these primary care docs, they are the experts. I'm, they do this all the time. And so we really try to have my older patients own their own responsibility um, and own you know, their relationship with their PCP. Part of our records and part of the cancer treatment summaries Every note I write on these patients has their entire cancer treatment summary on there. And it gives the whole list of things that I might be worried about or things we need to look for. And they tend to give directions. Like, for example, my young women who, are, get, who need a mammogram, it'll say on there, mammogram screening starting at 25. Um, let's say they're 30 now. It'll say mammogram screening yearly ordered by PCP. You know, And so we really try to make sure we have clear documentation so at any point, if one of my survivors walks into an emergency room, someone can pull up my note, someone can call us for information, and here's all the pertinent information, and here's why we care about it, uh, because that piece of information is really particular. Interesting. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and today's discussion on the subject of childhood cancer survivorship is with pediatric oncologist Dr. Jody Seema and Jim Howe, the father of one of her patients and also my colleague at HealthLink on Air. And Dr. Seema, I wanted to ask which um, childhood cancers have the most likelihood of coming back later in life? So in terms of the actual cancer itself relapsing, at a certain point in time, that risk goes down. Every cancer is a little different. There are some cancers like a germ cell tumor. Uh, I think of it as they burn fast. You know, if you're past two years out from diagnosis with a germ cell, 
you're really okay. There are some cancers like Ewing's and ALL that can be a little more creepy and that their relapse curve stretches out a little bit um, into that second five years, sort of the, those, you know, zero to five years is what we typically think of um, as sort of your cancer-free. Um, and five to 10, uh, there's a couple, like I said, ALL, Ewing's can sort of creep into that second five years. But every cancer is a little bit different. Um, even among kids with leukemia, there are different types of leukemia that have risks of coming back at different times. By the time most of the, the kids transition to survivorship, um, they really, their risk of relapse is minimal. And you know, I think something that Jim talked about is that mindset transition where you're go, 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 you're at chemo appointments, you're, you are acutely worried about your child's life on a day-to-day basis, normal life filters in and you're worried about, did I forget to put snack in there so they're not starving between school and soccer practice? And somewhere in there is where survivorship blooms and survivorship grows and you really start to say, what's what's the best version of my life right now? What's the most healthy person I can be? And you forget that a little bit that that cancer was there. Yeah, I, I want to echo that and say that survivorship is a much nicer state of being than than actively fighting the cancer. It's, it allows you to have a, to, to step back and to have a, a nice life, you hope. Um, but I wanted to also make the point, um, Jody, you've been talking about coming back for survivorship physicals, for example. You keep track of how your patients are doing as they grow older. Um, so that information not only helps the patient um, as he or she deals with uh, the aftermath of cancer, but it also can help other patients, maybe uh, scientists who are researching drugs, how, how is that information yeah. used? I, I think that is very important because that's an underlying part of what Upstate is, right? I, I think we provide care, but there's something bigger and different when you're at an academic institution that your job is not only to take care of the patient, your job is to grow the science and your job is to take care of this patient and the hundred behind them and the hundred behind them. So that is a really important job that we focus on in survivorship in a lot of different ways. We have a very, uh, I have an excellent team, love my team. We have um, our therapists, our clinical social workers with us, Stephanie Berry, Robin Monteleone is our nurse coordinator. And we screen our patients and we talk a lot about what their psychosocial effects are, how this is affecting their life, and we gather data on that. Uh, we gather data and we have databases that Robin manages that look at what treatment exposures people had, what kinds of problems are they having. We participate in national conferences and I always tell the patients, I always laugh with my survivors because I'll always come back with new great information when I hang out with what I call my survivor geeks, right? We all have our thing in life that's ours that we're so excited about that maybe not everyone understands. And you know, whether it's Comic-Con or for me, it's going to a survivor conference, uh, I enjoy that time to be with other people across the country who are really looking at this because part of survivorship is tricky. I have drug A that I've now been using for 10 years and it's a wonderful drug and it's new and it's helpful. I do not know what that's going to do when I give it to a five-year-old in 20 years. And the only way to know is to watch them, to pay attention, to look for patterns, and to connect with other people across the country to make sure we're really furthering the science and figuring out what the next best thing is. 
Um, but but we do we do laugh because when I come back from what I call my, my survivor dork or my survivor geek conferences, I tell the patients, this is what I've learned and this is where we are and this is the science. And I think that also helps our patients engage in a bigger way with their cancer survivorship and sort of connects them um, to this idea that I had this thing and it, it's still growing and it's still a big part of, of me, but in a different, better way. Do you, as a, as a cancer survivor, do you always have to be vigilant about um, any little thing that happens with your body? Do you always have to have like in the back of your mind this almost a fear that, oh my God, it could be cancer coming back, right? So a little bit of that is yes, and a little bit of that is no. Um, some of my patients who are Hodgkin's disease survivors and they have gotten you know, chemo and radiation, um, little things like heartburn, we talk about heartburn is heartburn and many people have it, but you need to think about persistent or odd heartburn being esophageal cancer because you are radiated to that area. So there's an interesting balance there. I think the most important part is that survivor has to own who they are and their medical information so that they know, no matter what setting they are, I don't care if they go across the country, wherever they are, they are the expert on their body. They know what those stumbling blocks are down the line. So they know what to not so worry about and what to worry about. And that also goes back to that idea of PCP engagement. They're with their primaries and nope, go to your primary. And sometimes we'll get a call. Like we'll get a, one of my beloved patients, she's, she's a lovely uh, woman in her 30s now doing great. And, you know, she had something going on she was worried about. So she called her primary and they were getting them in. And then she called us and she knew she didn't need to call us, but it made her feel better. But she also knew I got to go to my primary. This is what I do. This is how I manage it. And I know I shouldn't be worried about this. And, and so some of that is normal anxiety and fears and stuff and but as long as you have that education and and your and that and that empowerment to own your medical information and own your health in your life and that's an important part of what we do how do um, primary care providers by and large are they knowledgeable enough about cancer and the after effects to kind of do that so that is fascinating um and i'll tell you i spent when I was younger and didn't have so many children of my own, I spent a lot of time like researching that. And it was an area I was very interested in. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of great studies out there that say by and large, primary care docs want to care for their survivors, but over and over again, in different ways of assessing them, they say, I'm not really comfortable. I don't know what to do. I don't have this knowledge. And I can tell you in my own office with my partners, they know some stuff about survivorship, but they don't know it to the extent that I do. So I always think of my role is to sort of be the expert in the corner who doesn't have to run the show, but gosh, I'm right here to help you. And, and that's part of how we view our communication is I want to put all the tools in that PCP's hand easily every single time they get a note from me. I don't want them to get a cancer treatment summary once when the kid goes off treatment, bury it in a chart or scan it somewhere in an electronic medical record where it's 100 clicks back. Every time, you know, my note should say to them, hey, remember, here's where their cancer was. Hey, here's what we did. Hey, here's what I'm worried about, even if it's all going well. Um, and that's the goal is to make those primary care docs job easier. 
Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, and today's discussion on the subject of childhood cancer survivorship is with pediatric oncologist uh, Dr. Jody Seema and Jim Howe, the father of one of her patients and also my colleague at HealthLink on Air. Now, we've talked about survivorship and and how you're monitoring wellness um, during visits. How much attention do you give to side effects that might be caused by cancer treatments years later? That's a lot of how we sort of structure the appointments. Just to give you an idea, so our patient comes in for an appointment. They're put in a room by um, Christopher is our nurse. He's lovely. And Christopher checks in with them. Hey, how you doing? Gets labs if we need it. Um, Our clinical social worker goes in next and does a complete psychosocial screening with them. And maybe it's someone she's seen once before, twice before, but she'll address how's school? Um, How's your brain function? How's your mood? How's anxiety? And sometimes those anxieties are normal life stuff. Sometimes they're cancer related. Then I go in the room and and Robin comes with me and we go over system, not really system by system, sort of problem by problem, what we're worried about. So if I know, for instance, that my survivor that I'm seeing today got medicine that affected their heart, I'll start with, hey, what are you doing for activity? What are you doing for exercise? How are we doing with that? Um, You know, when was your last echo? We'll talk about that. When do you need one? When do we look again? If it's a young woman who is, you know, just kind of hitting, you know, young adulthood, I might remind them, hey, you only see me once a year. If you get pregnant in the next year, whether planned or unplanned, you need an echo of your heart while you're pregnant to make sure that your heart's okay. So the echo is a, a scan yeah, of the heart. Ultrasound to look, of the heart. Okay. Yeah, just looks at fun- looks at function basically. Cardiologists just somewhere are like seizing because I described it that way, but it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> so, you know, we go through kind of system by system or, or problem by problem, what we need to look at for that particular patient. And that's where we might address fertility. You know, your risk of infertility is, let's say, low. And that's important for people to hear, even if the risk is low, because if I'm a survivor who's now 22, and you told me that when I was 15, I may not remember, but gosh, it's important for me to hear now I'm okay to have kids and my kids are going to be fine. And so we'll kind of go through that problem based, and it's very specific based on what each person's exposures were. Now, um, Jim's daughter, Kate, was treated here at Upstate in in, in Syracuse um, and is in the survivorship program here. But what about someone who moves to Syracuse from somewhere else? They had cancer as a child elsewhere, and now they're new to this community do they come to the survivorship program here? Mm -hmm. Okay. Absolutely. So they usually what will happen is we'll either get a phone call from a parent as they're moving because parents who are, when you're a parent of a kid with cancer, you are very vigilant about their medical care. So when they're younger, uh, the parents will often call and say, hey, we're moving to the area. Uh, can we be seen? We get them in for an appointment. Sometimes they'll come to the area, be seen, and the primary care will we'll pick up, hey, they're a cancer survivor, and send them in. So we bring them in and we do what we call an initial visit. All of our patients, even patients treated by us, when they kind of enter the survivorship program, we do an evaluation that's a complete head-to-toe evaluation. We look at every single little thing. We make sure every detail of their treatment plan is crystal clear, whether that means trekking to get paper copies of medical records, whatever we need to do. That process can be long, exhausting, but completely worth it when you have accurate information to go forward on. Um, so th- so those they will come into us. Uh, we've had patients who were treated sort of 18, 19 years old and 
they're in an outlying area. So we'll also do consults where someone just comes in, we see them, we look at their treatment history, and we send them back because they don't want to make a two-hour drive every, you know, however, once a year or every two years. So we really are pretty flexible in terms of what does the patient need and what's the best way to help them and get that information. I'm also a big fan of avoiding unnecessary medical visits. I do not like dragging people in if I don't really think I have something to add to their care, uh, to give them further information. So some of my survivors who are low risk and doing great, here's your summary, you know what to worry about, you call me if you need me, we're here as a resource. Jody, are you also receiving reports back from those primary care providers or PCPs that say, I got your information, um, I looked at uh, his or her um, uh, physical again, and I think this or that. Are, so it's, it's a back and forth. It's not just you mm-hmm. giving a report to their primary yes. care doctors. Yep. Absolutely. So there, we get a lot of information, and we'll, sometimes someone will have a scan for something kind of unrelated, or someone has a problem going on. They just want us to look at it. So we get there's a lot of communication coming in. Um, thankfully, I have Robin who handles all that and, and puts it in front of my nose and says, hey, this is okay, I'm going to call them, and, and really is a, she, a key piece to that communication where it's very difficult to for any physicians to find extra time during the day that doesn't exist to be able to communicate, but the communication is so critical. So when you have members of your team that pick that up and say, hey, here's what you need to look at, this is what's going on, I can look at things. We can make sure that everything is in line and, and kind of just just how it should be. Give our expertise and get that feedback back to PCPs in real time, not you know a week or two later. That's not helpful to but people. But the information is so, flowing both ways. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, for the good of yep, the it's great. Okay. Well, I want to make it a point um, to say that we will link to the Survivor Wellness Center website on the healthlinkonair.org website where this podcast will be posted. And I want to thank both of you for this conversation. I think it's been very beneficial. Thank you. Thanks. My guests have been Jim Howe, the father of a childhood cancer survivor, and also my colleague, along with pediatric oncologist Dr. Jody Seema, who directs Upstate's Cancer Survivorship Program. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.